Jocko Willink was one of the most beloved Navy SEAL commanders in our most recent Iraq war. During the Battle of Ramadi, his team fell victim to what's called a blue-on-blue incident. When friendly fire killed an Iraqi soldier and wounded several others, including a Navy SEAL. In the aftermath, Willink found many reasons for the failures, but he quickly realized that responsibility for the failure fell on his shoulders. All responsibility for success and failure rests with the leader. He goes on to observe, As individuals, we often attribute success of others to luck or circumstances and make excuses for our own failures and the failures of our team. We blame our own poor performance on bad luck, circumstances beyond our control, or poorly performing subordinates, anyone but ourselves. Total responsibility for failure is a difficult thing to accept. And taking ownership when things go wrong requires extraordinary humility and courage. But doing just that is an absolute necessity to learning, growing as a leader, and improving a team's performance. This is what Willink calls extreme ownership. His philosophy is all members of the group must take individual responsibility for the failures of the group even if one is not convinced he or she has contributed to the failure. I would venture to guess all of us have experienced the temptation to deflect personal responsibility and the temptation to blame others for our circumstances. It's a carnal tendency as old as the Garden of Eden itself. The woman whom you gave me, She gave me of the tree, and I ate. You gave her to me, God, and this is what she did. Jesus places this tendency to deflect responsibility in the mouth of the man who blamed his master for his failure to invest one mina. For I feared you because you are an austere man, You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Luke 19.21 Or in other words, Lord, it's all your fault that I failed. If you were a little nicer, I could have turned a prophet. So the temptation to deflect responsibility for our actions is an unfortunate part of human nature. But when we allow this tendency to gain control of our lives, it leads to a very destructive mentality described as victimhood. Victimhood is the belief that one's life is entirely under the control of forces outside oneself, such as fate, luck, or the mercy of other people. Those trapped in a victimhood mentality display a high sensitivity to slights. Terms like microaggressions and trigger warnings are examples of the thin skin our culture has developed in recent years. The victimhood mentality leads to a tendency to handle conflicts through third parties, a tendency that's especially prevalent on today's college campuses. Rather than engage offensive students or professors in dialogue, 
students who are offended demand solutions from administrators or legal authorities. Come fix the problem for me. Victimhood also seeks to cultivate an image of trauma at every turn. In her book, iGen, Why Today Superconnected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood, Jean Twinge writes, As recently as 1980, psychiatrists used the word trauma to describe only events outside the range of normal human experience. Now, however, many more events are included in the official list. And lay people use the word trauma to describe experiences such as a bad hair day and seeing chalked words supporting a presidential candidate, as happened at Emory University when Trump 2016 was written on sidewalks and students protested yelling, We are in pain. In the Google Books database, the use of the word trauma quadrupled between 1965 and 2005. This is a crucial point. One does not have to be a victim in order to adopt a victimhood mentality. Scripture portrays three contrasting pictures that are worth considering this morning. We see one man who claimed to be a victim of the sins of others, and two examples who accepted full responsibility even for sins that were not their own. Josiah, son of the wicked king Ammon, ascended to the throne of Judah at a young age and endeavored to rule his people in righteousness. Because of generations of neglect, Josiah never read the book of the law prior to the 18th year of his reign. When he did, the condemnation of idolatry and the warnings of impending doom shook Josiah to his core. Because the king was penitent when he heard the words of the law, God spared Josiah's generation from the catastrophe that awaited Josiah could have resorted to blaming his forefathers. He does acknowledge their responsibility in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 13, mourning how the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. He does acknowledge their responsibility, but he does not act accordingly. He could have maintained the status quo by turning a blind eye to the idolatry of the people. Asa, Jehoash, and Amaziah were all considered good kings. And yet they allowed the worship of idols to continue in the high places. Of course, comparing the time of Josiah with these predecessors is not an apples-to-apples comparison. The situation had grown worse under Josiah's grandfather Manasseh, so much so that his reign is consistently depicted as Judah's low point. Regardless, other good kings either ignored or disregarded what was taking place on the high places in spite of the warnings of Scripture. Though Josiah acknowledged the responsibility of previous generations, 
His full-scale restoration of Judah, described in 2 Kings 23, reveals a man who, in the words of Jocko Willink, took extreme ownership. He swears to abide by the covenant God formed with Moses and demands that the nation's leaders do likewise. He eradicates idolatry in all of its many forms from the land. He restores the worship of Jehovah, including feasts like Passover, which had been neglected for generations. Josiah was not responsible for the mess Judah was in, but he assumed full responsibility and acted accordingly. Contrast the picture of Josiah with the example of Saul. Samuel gave Saul very specific instructions about how God wanted war waged against the Amalekites. When Samuel arrived after the battle, he heard the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen, an indication that Saul did not keep the command of God as he claimed. What was Saul's justification for allowing this to go on? Well, it was the people's fault, according to Saul. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. 1 Samuel 15, 15. Saul accepted no responsibility for what took place, choosing instead to blame the people. Based on what Scripture says in 1 Samuel 15 and 9, It appears the people were co-conspirators in Saul's disobedience. Perhaps they did demand that Saul spare the best livestock, and feeling the pressure to please the people, Saul relented. Regardless, Saul was the king. He was responsible and was consequently held accountable. Contrast the picture of Saul with the picture of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9 is an impressive example of a righteous man accepting responsibility for sins that were not his own. Reading what we call Jeremiah 25 spurs Daniel to offer intercessory prayer on behalf of his people. The elderly prophet begs God to remember the promises made some seven decades before and deliver Israel from her captivity. The prayer is remarkable, but among the many remarkable features of the prayer are the number of instances Daniel accepts responsibility for the actions of others. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. Verse 5, neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets. Verse 6, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Verse 10, but the best example is verse number 20. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, Daniel speaks as if he had a hand in the fallen state of his people. Now, please remember, Daniel was a young man when the Babylonians first took him captive. It is doubtful that he was personally responsible for the sins he confesses before God. 
And yet this righteous man places himself among the rebellious, the wicked, and the obstinate. Why? Because when a community fails, every member of the community must hold themselves accountable for the failure. Daniel willingly accepted responsibility not only for his own sins, but also for the sins of others. We have sinned, we have rebelled, we have not listened. While many in his generation, we know that from Ezekiel 18, while many in his generation refused to accept responsibility and resorted to blaming others, Daniel humbly and courageously numbered himself among the transgressors and begged God for redemption. In the examples of Josiah and Daniel, we see two men who, although they were innocent, accepted responsibility, took extreme ownership with both humility and courage. Before I delve into the next few points, I'd like to offer just a couple of quick clarifications. As I proceed ahead, I want to make it clear, I am not denying that there are victims of real offenses. Nor am I suggesting that they are responsible for the injuries perpetrated against them. Jesus says it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea that he should offend one of these little ones. Offenses will happen. Innocent folks will be injured. And Jesus says those offenders will be held accountable. He assures us of this. What concerns me this morning is the mentality that can come as a result Victimhood is the belief that one's life is entirely under the control of forces outside oneself, such as fate, luck, or the mercy of other people. Certainly, victims of trauma can fall prey to such thoughts. But what is unfortunate about a victimhood mentality is that not only are real victims of trauma susceptible, we all can fall into the trap of perceiving ourselves as victims. While we may not be responsible for the terrible things that have happened to us in life, we are responsible for the thought patterns and actions that emerge after the fact. One solution to the victimhood mentality is to remember we all have personal agency regardless of what happens to us. Consider the example of Jesus. Jesus was a real victim in its strictest definition. He was betrayed by a friend, abandoned by most of the rest of his friends, falsely accused, exchanged places with a real criminal, and unjustly put to death. But Jesus did not see himself as a victim. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. 
but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus did not see himself as a victim of forces outside of his control. Rather, he saw himself as operating within the will of God, fully empowered to choose what course his life would take. Yeah, but that was Jesus, the Son of God, you might be thinking to yourself. He's different. Yes, he is different. But what do you suppose this means? Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8.37 In Christ, the greatest evils of all, sin and death, no longer have dominion over us. Death may get us, but the grave cannot hold us in Jesus Christ. We have victory in Him. Yes, life is full of tragedy and sorrows and tears without number, but the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That glory, though, hinges. It hinges on a simple decision. Will I see myself as a victim of circumstances beyond my control? Or will I see myself as more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ? In any given situation, it's best to find some way to assume some level of responsibility. We cannot control how other people treat us but we can control how we respond. When others offend us, it's useful to consider if our words or our actions created a stumbling block that provoked the offense rather than focusing all of the attention on the offense. We cannot change the past, but we can decide that we will no longer allow it to affect the present And follow us into our future. We may not always be able to control how we feel. But we can learn to control the thoughts that come to mind when we are hurt. The alternative is bleak. The alternative is to go through life never guilty. Always offended. Thin skinned and thick headed. And miserable. A quick word of warning, though. Some of us assume too much responsibility for the actions of others. And consequently, we use that as a way to beat ourselves down. For example, kids with divorced parents are tempted to believe that they are in some way responsible for the dissolution of their parents' marriage. Or those who have been the victims of chronic bullying are tempted to question their value as a person. People pick on me because I don't matter. I bring this up because it is possible to assume too much responsibility in a situation where one is truly a victim of another's offense. So while we endeavor to take responsibility for our lives, let us not take too much onto ourselves. But the great danger of our time 
is to abdicate all sense of responsibility to blame others and to see ourselves as innocent as the innocent aggrieved parties in all situations. Another thing to beware of with the victimhood mentality. We should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. One of the interesting facets of the victimhood mentality is it assumes a position of moral superiority. The victimhood mentality leads some people to perceive themselves as having an immaculate morality and view everyone else as being immoral. This is something that can be called moral elitism. Moral elitism can be used to control others by accusing others of being immoral, unfair, or selfish, while seeing oneself as being supremely moral and ethical. Moral elitism often develops as a defense mechanism against the deeply painful emotions and as a way to maintain a positive self-image. As a result, those under distress tend to deny their own aggressiveness and destructive impulses and project those onto others. The other is perceived as threatening, whereas the self is perceived as persecuted, vulnerable, and consequently morally superior. A victimhood mentality can lead us to believe that evil is found anywhere but inside us. We are tempted to always place ourselves on the side of the good. Moral elitism is manifest in our culture. It's manifest in the modern mentality. On the one hand, some people see themselves as victims of the most oppressive society in human history. They concurrently believe we're so much better than the terrible, misogynistic, racist, ignorant, violent, evil people that came before us. This is moral elitism writ large. Jesus saw this problem in his own day. He warned about the dangers of moral elitism. He quotes the scribes and Pharisees, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood prophets, Matthew 23.30. Now, I'm not suggesting that the scribes and Pharisees were overtaken by a victimhood mentality. I can't make that argument. But they were exhibiting an extraordinary level of moral elitism. If we had lived back then, we would have never participated in such atrocities. We're better people than they are. Their hypocrisy is patently obvious. Since that generation was guilty of a greater sin than their forefathers. In order to preserve their power, they conspired against Christ, culminating in his execution. Though they believed otherwise, the elites of Jesus' day were in fact no better than their forefathers. And it could be argued that they were guilty of far greater crimes. But a sense of moral superiority was not just a problem among the elites. In Romans chapter 3, verse number 9, Paul asks his fellow Jews, Are we better than the Gentiles? Not at all, he concludes. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. 
Paul's question reveals a problem in first century Jewish culture. They were accustomed to thinking of themselves as better than their neighbors, better than the Gentiles. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that first century Jewish culture was held captive by a victimhood mentality. I can't make that argument. What I do want to illustrate is the danger of moral superiority and the damage that it might inflict on others. Alexander Solzhenitsyn has experienced a bit of a renaissance in our awareness in the last few years. He's an interesting man. He was a Russian dissident and harsh critic of Joseph Stalin. Solzhenitsyn was sentenced to hard labor in the gulags of Siberia for criticizing the Soviet regime in private correspondence. He, like many Russians, was passionate for his homeland. In the early days of communism, he almost joined the precursor to the KGB. Sitting in the gulag as he reflected back on those days, he realized how close he had come to being on the other side, to be a guard in that prison rather than a prisoner. Stunned by this realization, he later wrote in his book, Gulag Archipelago, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessarily only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The harsh reality is the world is a mess, not because of what someone else has done, but because of what I have done. It's easy to blame. It's easy to deflect blame onto faceless thems and cosmic forces to find comfort in, well, I'm a better person than they are. But unless you're willing to be nailed to a cross as a propitiation for the sins of humanity, not a single person listening to this lesson has made the world a better place, at least not in a consequential way. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of ourselves as of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Second Corinthians three, verses five and six. The world is broken. And we all bear a measure of responsibility for breaking it. Yes, there are victims here, but there are no innocent parties. Last thing I'd like for you to think about. Another way to confront the victimhood mentality is to realize that it's going to hurt no matter what I do. We are tempted to avoid responsibility because we know in some cases personal accountability really hurts. It hurts a lot. So avoiding responsibility seems like 
It will help us avoid pain. But this is a lie. Folks drag themselves through months and years of mental and emotional torture in order to avoid personal accountability. They openly weep as they blame others for a predicament they themselves had a hand in creating. They must at all costs be right because the alternative is to face the pain and hurt and they just don't want to hurt anymore. But taking responsibility for your life may hurt a lot less than you think. One of the other interesting features of the victimhood mentality is its tendency to catastrophize, to exaggerate the extent to which one's life or circumstances is bad. Earlier I quoted from Jean Twinge's book, iGen, which she points out that the word trauma has gone from being a, an exceptional experience that harms people to being an everyday word that people use to describe disappointment in their lives. This is catastrophizing. Describing the world as being worse than it actually is. Remember the children of Israel after they left Egypt? They actually claimed that they were better off in Egypt than they were wandering through the wilderness. And they sure felt that way as they were standing on the cusp of invading the land of Canaan. But was that true? Which was worse, invading the land of Canaan by the power who had parted the Red Sea or wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years? Oftentimes, things seem like they're a whole lot worse than they actually are. And the alternative, the alternative is a far, far, it's far greater in damage. Yes, taking responsibility for our lives might hurt. It might cost us a lot in terms of sacrifice, humiliation, and personal trouble. But are you sure it's worse than running away? Is it worse than abdicating responsibility? Is it worse than embracing victimhood and descending into depression, misery, and resentment? One man observed, there will be times in your life when it will take everything you have to face what is in front of you instead of hiding away from a truth so terrible that the only thing worse is the falsehood you long to replace it with. The bottom line is, in some cases, either way, you're going to hurt. The better road, the cleaner way, the way which leads to forgiveness, redemption, and peace begins with the realization, I am responsible for my life. As I draw this to a close, I'll ask you a question. Not looking for an answer. Just a question for thought. What does it mean to take up your cross and follow after Jesus? Well, sacrificing oneself for the good of others is undoubtedly an appropriate interpretation of that statement. Setting aside one's desires in order to carry out the will of God, that's another. But what about this? Taking up our cross means a 
assuming responsibility for mistakes that may not be of our own making and willingly bear the consequences for those mistakes. Paul says God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus knew no sin. He was a truly innocent party if there ever was one. He was tempted at all points as we are, yet without sin. And yet he chose to bear the consequences for sin as though he himself were responsible for the mess we created. Taking up our cross means choosing to accept full responsibility for the course of our lives.